uh, get your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2, which is where we will start in a few moments. And then the study notes in your bulletin, of course, I know will be a help to you. And if you have kids and they have one of those cool little packets, there are things in there that will coordinate specifically with the, the things that I say. So if your kids are old enough to kind of follow along, they can do that. And if they're younger, we gave them some stuff to more just draw in color and, you know, things like that. I want to welcome all of our kids. And um, uh, today is a, a worship together day. So in all of our morning services, our kids are joining us. That gives our teachers the morning off. A number of them were going to be gone, are gone. And uh, it's a good thing for all of us to see our kids uh, join us from time to time anyway. Uh, that's a relief to many of us. We love having the kids in here. We know that that means more movement and a little more noise. That's okay. Happy with it. And for those of you who are parents who ordinarily actually enjoy having your kids uh, in another room, um, thank you for, for letting us do this today. And don't worry about your kids. They're fine. Um, if you look with me at your study notes, I want to kind of orient you to what we're doing today and we'll be doing for the next few weeks here as we head toward fall. Of course, we just wrapped up a... July-August preaching series through the Minor Prophets, and every fall as we begin, uh, I, I like to take a few weeks to talk about who we are as a church family, God's call to us as a church, and just remember some core things about what we're to, what we're to do and who we're to be. And so this year, that's going to be under the heading of three priorities for church life in an antagonistic age. You see that as a title. And there are three topics I want to talk about over the next three weeks. Each of them will have a specific sentence about it. And today's specific sentence is there on your study notes, God's life-giving word must define us. Sometimes sermons have three points in a poem. Each of these three weeks, there will be one point, no poem. All right? So that's my point today. God's life-giving word must define us. And today, I have brought things for table number one and table number two. So along the way, we're going to work all of these things in. Uh, we'll spend time in God's Word, and I'll talk to you about all of these, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll all get that, that main point. Uh, if you look at your notes with me, oh, oh, I should tell you this, sorry, before I skip ahead. After these three weeks, starting September 22nd, we will begin uh, a, a lengthier preaching series through the book of Galatians. And that will be the same week that we kick off our community groups. And that will take us through about March or so. Because we take time off at Christmas for other things. And it's, I'm so excited about that, that series, Defining the Gospel. We live in a day of a lot of nonsense a lot of nonsense in the, in the name of Jesus. And so the book of Galatians, one of Paul's letters that takes us very clearly to some big issues about what the gospel is and what it isn't. So that's where we're going starting September 22nd. Now, on your study notes then, that, that introductory section, I mentioned that we live in an antagonistic age, and my title, of course, acknowledges that as, as well. On a day that we invite the kids, what, what am I thinking using a term like antagonistic? Why use a $5 word? Well, that means that in today's world, uh, not everyone is friendly to issues of faith. That isn't new to us. Uh, the presence of God in, in public life, people who talk about values, the people who talk about right and wrong as objective things. Some things are right, some things are wrong. 
Uh, not everybody likes even that kind of a, of a definition. And I mention here that, as always, so now, we have three main adversaries. You've heard this said different ways through the years, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, they continue to be adversaries to the church. And by that, of course, I mean not the world in the sense of the trees and the world that God created, the universe, things like that, but the world system that sets itself up against the things of God, that makes fun of things that are spiritually driven, that undermines the word of God, laughs at spiritual truth, the world system that tells you to value things that you shouldn't value, to love what you shouldn't love, that tells you things are okay that aren't okay. The world system. Uh, The second adversary, the flesh. That is, that thing in you that turns your feet away from the things of God. And don't say it isn't there. Every one of us, as the songwriter would say, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Every one of us has that thing in us that makes us, that, that, that pushes us to want what we shouldn't want, love what we shouldn't love. Every one of us, as long as we're living in this world, there is that thing that remains in you that can turn your heart away from the Lord, the flesh, and the devil, of course. The Bible says there's a very real being called the devil or Satan, and we we forget that to our own peril. Those three enemies. Now, then, God's life-giving word must define us. I want to talk about two books for a moment. One is listed here for you, but before I get there, I want to mention another book that I know I've commented on in the past. It's called The American Church in Crisis. It was published in 2008, It is a compilation of surveys of over 200,000 churches across America in a variety of social settings, uh, all kinds of different denominations, and it, it looks at them. It looks at trends. It looks at what's going on in the broader church life. And I'm not going to comment on all of those things except one, because it's where we're going today, all right? One of the things that is very evident from all the data is that denominations, pay attention to this, denominations that, that water down or remove the word of God. Denominations that say, uh, oh no, uh, the world is changing and we need to quit talking about what the Bible says. Or we need to minimize or we need to change the rights and wrongs. Otherwise, people are going to leave. Guess what? Churches that do that die quicker denominations that remove the word of God from the place of foundation and primacy, those denominations decline faster. The very thing that they would say they're trying to avoid, becoming irrelevant, you become irrelevant if you remove the most relevant book that ever existed, and that is the Bible. The Bible is relevant. You don't have to make it relevant. You might want to notice its relevance, but I chafe every time somebody says, you need to take the Bible and make it relevant. It's like, oh, honey, uh, no, the Bible is relevant. It, you may not be relevant, but the Bible's relevant because it describes the human condition from God's standpoint. And that's extremely relevant. All right? Make it relevant, my goodness sakes. There's a, 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 a one of the Bibles I have on my shelf has a, the dust cover. And uh, I, I just thought, who wrote that? It's got, you know, things on it, why you should buy this particular version of the Bible. And one of the little taglines says, relevant for today. I know what they mean, but it's sure said poorly, and it raises the hair on the back of my neck. What do you mean? This, oh, that, that version is relevant for today. Let me tell you something, friend. 
It's all relevant. The Bible is the most relevant book out there. It describes what's wrong with this world, what's wrong with you, how to be reconciled with the God who made you. That seems pretty relevant to me. So I'm saying this. Churches, denominations that set aside the word of God, that minimize the word of God, are the ones that David T. Olson would say they're declining the fastest. Denominations, organizations, churches that hold on to the word of God are the ones who tend to be more solid and tend to continue to grow. Now, let me say this. I did not say, nor does Olson, that an organization, a church that is small, is small because it is not holding high the word of God. That's not what I said. I'm talking about big picture stuff, denominations that abandon the word of God, thinking they're doing themselves a favor, are more sure to die. Well, enough of that. You can read the book yourself if you like statistics. Which drives me to another book. All right? Uh, And this is the one I have referenced here. I've spent uh, time over the summer meeting with a group of guys um, and having a wonderful time talking our way through this book called Word-Centered Church, Jonathan Lehman out of Capitol Hill Baptist Church. It's um, a smaller book, a couple hundred pages, and it talks about the role of the Word of God in the life of a church to give life and health and vibrancy to the people of God and to the church. And uh, to, to just encourage you a little bit, I want to read just a few excerpts that will give you an idea of where this book is going. It's a worthy read if you like little books. And again, uh, it was my privilege uh, to meet with a group of guys this summer talking this through in addition to some things from the Bible. But, but Lehman says these things in his introduction to the book. Uh, he says this, My guess is that many Christians today want sermons and songs that are true and broadly biblical. Yet, for many of us, rightly or wrongly, a, small, a strong ministry of the word is not the top priority. When we first walk into a church, our attention fixes on other things, like the style of the music, the availability of good children's programming, or the look and feel of the room. Honestly, we can evaluate churches like people evaluate trendy urban restaurants. How's the ambiance? Now, he's not saying those other things are not important. He's saying this, number one, is the role of the word of God in the life of the church. Starting from preaching, but in every other area of the ministry of the church, is the word of God flavoring it, guiding it, building a foundation for all of it. And if not, there, friend, you can have all the cool music and cool lights and even the fog that we don't do on stage. And you know what? Empty, empty, empty. You might even grow a crowd. Ah, now he goes on. Meanwhile, church leaders, may I say some church leaders, meanwhile, church leaders seem to have lost confidence in the ministry of the word, like teenagers at a mall. They become distracted by all the brightly lit possibilities, dynamic worship, holistic small groups, attractive programs, passionate spirituality, empowered leadership, liturgical forms, hospitality, incarnational ministries, missional living, and the list goes on. And again, he's not saying that any of those are bad. He's saying all of them must be built on the word of God. (laughs) Otherwise, your cool programs come up with a big zero, a zero. See? A couple other things I want to read to you. I'm hoping to encourage you to pick up a copy of this book yourself and read it. He says, it's all too easy to put our faith in things that more visibly and immediately draw people. 
The word of God, he says, must be the life, uh, must continue through the life of the church as God's word becomes absolutely central in the lives of members and bounces back and forth to one another. The word of God reverberates or bounces around as in a canyon. That's an analogy he uses several times. A couple weeks ago, I was up in the Cascades with some of our junior high guys and Dave Potter, and there was a moment that we were standing up on this hillside at the end of a canyon when one of the guys decided it was the right time to do a Tarzan yell. I appreciated him asking, can I do this? Because we had been talking to them about how people go to the woods to flee the noises of people like you. And so we, he, he said, can I do a Tarzan yell? And I said, you know, knock yourself out. So he did it. And, and it, it, it worked. The, the Tarzan yell, oh, you know, you get the idea. It, you could hear it echoing down the valley. And his point is, that's what you want the word of God to do in the life of your church. Is, is, is echo through it and just permeate the relationships and the programs so that the word of God is central, see, in the life of the church. And just one other item here, if I may. He says this, churches centered on God's word come alive and grow. And he defines what he means by grow. He doesn't, he's not promising you're going to get big. That isn't the point. But they become alive and they grow in everything that matters. When God's word is central, you should read that book. Now, I want to point to table number one, and then we're going to pray, and we're going to turn to God's word, okay? On table number one, I brought, I know, I brought some Bibles. I just thought you should, we should do that. So I'm going to tell you what I have here, and after the sermon is done, you should, you should come on down and look at some of these if you're interested in this sort of thing. This is a, a big pulpit Bible. I don't know its history, but I found it in our church library some years ago, and I rescued it. So it's a rescue. Uh, I suppose Miss Hayes will know where it came from. I don't know where it came from. But in years gone by, it was common to, for churches to have a, a large Bible someplace. Some of you have a large Bible in your home. Well, there's a big one. But nobody would ever mistake what that is, and it won't fit in your purse. So I brought that. I thought it was fun. I brought my Hebrew Bible. If you've ever wondered what a Hebrew text looks like, so Old Testament, and of course, to do it right, you're supposed to start in the back. But if you want to know what that looks like, take a look. I brought my Greek New Testament. If you're not sure what that looks like, and you say it's Greek to me, well, yes, there it is. You should look at that. I brought uh, my first Bible, my first like big boy Bible, that I received uh, when I was in fourth grade back in 1970. I still have it. I have a lot of Bibles, but there's one, and it says in the front that it was given to me uh, when I was in fourth grade for some reason. I don't know why. Uh, I have a Russian Bible. And if you want to know what it looks like in Russian, there's the New Testament. And this one's kind of cool, too. This is from, uh, this was put together by Wycliffe Bible Translators, which is an organization committed to getting the Bible in the language of, of people, the native tongue, okay? And this is a translation of the, the Alka or the Warani people in Ecuador, made famous because they're the ones who killed Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and, and all those other guys, okay? This is a copy of the New Testament that went to them. This, this book right here is why those men died back when they did, was to see the word of God in the language of those people. This Bible, particularly this, this edition, was given to Sunset Bible Church back in 1992 by a couple of missionaries with Wycliffe Bible translators. And again, I rescued it from the church library that was heading elsewhere. So I thought, oh, we're going to keep that one. I think that's kind of fun. And then I have another Bible, just a couple more. It's the whole Bible in the tiniest print that I, you know what, 
Uh, unless you're 12, you can't possibly read it. But I, it's the whole Bible. Uh, there it is. I just thought you should see. You can fit it together. I also have two pages down here from the book of Leviticus. And it comes with a, an affidavit of originality. I have a few, I have about 10 pages of this. I don't know what that means. I don't swear by anything. It just says it's guaranteed to be a genuine, original period. That's kind of like a bottle of water saying it's bottled at the source. Which source is that? Oh, my kitchen. I don't know. I don't know what it means. But this is guaranteed to be a genuine, guaranteed to be a genuine original from the first, it says, from the first edition of the 1611 King James Pulpit Bible. Okay, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It might be a genuine fake, but it's still pretty cool. So if you want to come down and look at that, uh, there it is. And the pages are kind of older and crinkly and things like that. Then I'll trust parents to, you know, decide how old your kids are. If they want to turn pages or, or touch, you guys can supervise that. But I, 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 today I just want to flood us with value of the word of God. Okay? That's what I'm after today. That's the goal. God's life-giving word must define us. Want to pray for us? And we'll look at the text. Okay? Father, thank you for the morning. Uh, we're so grateful that we can, we can come together and open the word of God. That we live in a country where that's okay. And uh, we live in a country where we can have Bibles. Not everyone is so blessed. We, we have dozens of them in many cases on our, on our phones and our computers. And some people around the world have given their lives to have a Bible or a part of one. There to meet you, the living God. Our Father, we're so grateful. And I, I pray that this morning as we look at a couple of texts that remind us of how the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to effect change and, and the saving of our souls, reconciling us with you. Our Father, would you just remind us again, warm our hearts again with the, the authority and the clarity and the value of the Word of God. So do that today, I pray, by the Spirit of God among us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now, on your study notes then, you got your Bibles open to 2 Timothy. That's where we're going to start. I mentioned here that from beginning to end, beginning of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, there are countless texts that affirm the value of the Word of God. Uh, I'm just touching on a few today, of course. Now, the Bible is often called special revelation by theologians as opposed to general revelation. General revelation is usually referred to uh, uh, talking about nature or the world. The heavens declare the glory of God. So we talk about general revelation, which is enough to tell people of God's, as Paul would put it, his eternal power and divine nature, Romans 1. Right? His eternal power and divine nature are very clearly seen through what has been made, general revelation. But it takes special revelation, that is the Bible, to know God's plan of salvation, how you can be reconciled with the God who is. So uh, nature is enough to tell you that God is. The word of God is needed to tell you how to meet him. Okay? So general revelation, special revelation, uh, you see those two as fill-ins. Now, I have two things I want to talk about. First from 2 Timothy, the texts that are listed there in your study notes. And then, in a, a little later on, book of Hebrews chapter 4. So I come then to 2 Timothy, and just a few words about this book. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a young pastor in Ephesus by the name of Timothy. Older guy talking to a younger guy. Uh, if our understanding of history is correct, and I think it is, 2 Timothy is the last letter Paul wrote before he had his head cut off. 
No, he really did. Uh, the Romans uh, took care of that for him. And I believe Paul knew it was coming. He could see the handwriting on the wall. He knew that the hours were ticking by and he was about done. And so with his dying breath, so to speak, he writes a letter one more time to one guy. He doesn't write it to everybody. Like everybody, everybody listen up. He writes it to one guy who is going to follow him as a minister of the word of God. And he talks about some stuff. Now, First Timothy, similarly, as now in Second Timothy, he references a standard of truth, a standard of objective truth, the faith, the truth, things like that. But I'm going to read three portions from Second Timothy, and they correspond to the three statements that I have here on your study notes under that heading. Uh, the Bible is God-breathed. That heading, there are three statements. So I want to read then, starting Second Timothy 2, verses 14 through 19. And as I start in verse 14, I'll just look with you at the beginning of that. It says, remind them of these things. That, that tells you to look back at which things. Remind them of which things. Well, he's telling you, uh, verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, you know, follow him. But then verse 14, he says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Now watch this. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble. Don't you like that? Irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. I'm going to stop there. Now, Verse 15, Paul says to Timothy, as a core responsibility, you need to handle accurately the word of truth. You need to handle the Bible correctly. The terms that Paul uses would, would get the idea of cutting it straight. You got to cut it straight, Timothy. By implication, it means that other people don't. Otherwise, the verse makes no sense. Timothy, get it right. Implication, not everybody does. I think any of us who read or listen to stuff in broader culture know that a lot of people say a lot of nonsense, even saying, oh, here's a minister. Here's a minister of a church. And that person sometimes will say, the Bible says, and you'll say, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. The fact that you have a, a, a robe on or have a title as a minister or whatever, an author, a preacher of some, that doesn't mean you handle accurately the word of truth. Okay? I wish it were otherwise. But there's a call to the people of God to be like the, the Bereans who you recognize from this story in the book of Acts who checked what Paul, what Paul said. Imagine the Apostle Paul preaching and them going, slow down a little bit. I want to check and see if you're getting it right. Well, that's what they did. They checked the Apostle Paul with the scripture to say, yeah, I guess you're getting it right. Yeah, you're on track. Man, what, that was wonderful. Cut it straight. Paul says to Timothy, the Bible can be wrongly handled. You can end up with nonsense and lead people away from the living God. Don't do that. Don't do that. Cut it right, he says. Interesting, he mentions two people, Hymenaeus and Philetus. They've swerved from the truth. Paul believes, as I referenced already, 
Paul believed in an objective, do you hear my terms? An objective standard of truth that's true whether you think it is or not. Now, please get that right. You believing something doesn't make it true. Did you know that? That's a popular idea today. Well, for me, this is true. Well, what utter nonsense is that? More on that in a few minutes. Uh, No, you believing something doesn't make something true. Hopefully you believe what is true. Paul believed there was a body of truth, objective, true whether you believe it or not, true whether anybody believes it or not, that accords with what is. And he says of these guys, they've swerved from the truth, saying things that are not true. They're upsetting the faith of some. Well, yes, Timothy, Paul says, cut it right. That is the word of God. Get it straight. Now, chapter 3, starting verse 10. Not only does Paul mention Hymenaeus Hymenaeus and Philetus in chapter 2, now he references in verse 8 a couple other guys um, from longer ago who opposed Moses. They opposed the truth. There's that similar term, the truth. They opposed the truth. Paul says to Timothy, starting verse 10, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. He says, but as for you, but you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you've known the sacred writings. What's he referring to? The sacred writings. Well, the Bible, specifically the Old Testament. That's the part of the Bible they had. Did you know, according to Paul here, Timothy, listen, the Old Testament can lead you to salvation through faith in Christ. Sometimes New Testament believers spend 95% of their time in the New Testament and don't think much of the Old Testament. What a mistake. No, Paul says to Timothy, the sacred writings, Old Testament, able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Then watch verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for these four functions. For teaching, that is what's true. For reproof, telling you what isn't true. For correction, telling you how to get back on track. For training in righteousness, how to live the Christian life so that the man of God may be complete or mature, equipped for every good work. And by the way, if you're a, if you're a younger person who's using that the value pack you got today, all those words are in the word search. Right? It's where, how come they're in the word search? I got them right out of the Bible. So you'd search for them today in your word search. Well, see how you do finding all of those. Now, I point out here a couple of things. If you go back to verse 10, I want you to notice something. Every writer writes with a certain style or with certain patterns, and Paul is no different. In chapter 3, verse 10, this is an example of something Paul does regularly, three times in the text that we're reading today. You see verse 10 begins in the ESV, you however, you however. Now, what Paul does over and over again is talk about a bad example, people who have walked away from faith or something like that, 
And then he, he, it's a, he uses a strong turnaround to say, but you. The, two, the, the, the first two words of verse 10, as Paul wrote it, are but you. Which are the same two words that begin verse 14. Even in, though in English it says, but as for you, the first two words are the same two words in, in the language in which Paul wrote it, New T- or Koine Greek. But you, but you. You'll see it again in chapter 4 and verse 5. But you. The ESV says, as for you. I'm just telling you, it's the same two words. But you. He does it three times in these texts where he says, these guys are getting it wrong. These are getting it wrong. And I picture this. Paul's an older guy. Timothy's a younger guy. Um, you ever had somebody point their finger at you? Sometimes it drives you nuts. It's like, uh, 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 don't point your finger at me. We, we don't like that. Well, I picture Paul as an older guy. Timothy, younger, of course. I picture Paul, aged man, knowing his time is about done. Maybe even thumping young Timothy on the chest with his words. Timothy, Timothy, you see these guys? They're making a train wreck. But Timothy, you, listen to me right here. Eyes, buddy, don't you do that. You do it like this. But you, verse, verse 10, but you, you, you've done this. And verse, verse 14, but you continue. Listen, Timothy, don't stop. You, listen, the stuff you were taught as a child, your grandmother Lois, your mother Eunice, as she'll say elsewhere, they were right. They were right, Timothy. They taught you correctly. The stuff you learned at your mother's knee and your grandma telling you to follow the God of the Bible, they were right, so you do it. That's what he's saying. You continue, Timothy. Continue the things you've learned. The stuff from childhood that you hung on to, that you were told was correct. They were right. It is correct. So follow them. That's what Paul says to Timothy. I have in your study notes, God's word is a treasure. A standard to be lived by and to believe it or disbelieve it has eternal consequences. It's able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. See? Whether you believe the Bible or not matters for your eternal destiny. Okay? I want to read chapter 4, 1 through 5. This third text from Second Timothy. Paul says, I charge you. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, here's the charge, preach the word, Timothy. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching for, now watch this, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But you, he says, but you, Timothy, don't be like that. As for you, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. But you, but you, he says, verse 5, don't be like that, Timothy. I can just imagine, uh, uh, I think Paul would agree with the conclusion that I referenced from David Olson, the American church in crisis. The time will come, Paul says, when people will not want to hear the word of God. They want to hear all kinds of other cool things, maybe entertaining, wonderful things, but not the word of God. He says, Timothy, listen to me. No matter what everybody else is doing out there, you preach the word of God. And you keep preaching the word of God when maybe nobody else is. You keep doing it. And may I say that to you, it's not just a church event, the preaching of the word of God. No, the reading and obeying and loving the word of God and letting it just pour through your life, that's for you to do too, friend. Not just for a church to do. 
It is for a church to do, but it's for you. To let the word of God be the foundation on which you stand, the guide for your life, that gives you your marching orders. That's what the word of God is to be and to believe its message. Now, uh, I have on your study sheet then this, this statement according with this text. God's word is the primary tool of the spirit of God for the salvation of lost men and women and for our growth in holiness. That's why he said, preach the word. Let it reverberate through the church. Now, I brought some cool tools. This is table number two. Table number one is full of Bibles. Table number two isn't. And I just want to talk about these, all right? I noticed last time, kids kept scrawling away on papers. The adults were all paying attention. Uh, so, so good. Well, I brought some stuff um, that, that, that will help me and hopefully help you think about the Bible. Now, this isn't a tool. Um, this is an old hurricane-type lamp that belonged to my grandparents. I don't know how old it is. Uh, my grandparents came over from the old country about 100 years ago. I don't know if they brought this, but I just know that back in the day, this was in my grandparents' house. And uh, I was a kid, and then as the years go by, and you, your grandparents die, and your parents get some of their stuff. My mom had this. And then when my parents died, and we were you know, saying, I'd like that, and you want that, and I said, I want that. And I ended up with this cool lamp. I don't know how old it is. What does the Bible say? about itself. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. It is. I'd stumble and fall if I didn't, know what, if I didn't have that. Your word is a lamp to my feet. Who recognizes this? Okay, well, some of you, let me just tell you something. In addition to doing what I normally do during the week, in the last uh, month or so, I'm working in some home projects. I'm, I'm replacing a whole lot of things on my deck. I'm not building a new deck. I'm replacing a lot of things on my deck. So there are tools that one needs to do this. This is called a square, and this is supposed to be, well... Somebody give me the mathematical. What is this supposed to be? This is 90 degrees. You guys all passed basic geometry. Good job, you guys. Uh, 90 degrees. What if it was 88? Would you notice? Probably not. But some, what you build would be crooked. I've used this to do several things over the last month or so. Uh, I've used it to draw straight lines because the edges are all supposed to be straight. I've used it to measure 90-degree angles. Like, is that board actually perpendicular to the house or not? I don't know. But here it is. And so this is one way that it's close enough for me. I know you can get more cool electronic stuff. I don't own any of that. So old stuff, this belonged to my dad. He used it to build the house in which I was raised. So I know it's good been around a while. Um, More on this in a minute. Now, here's a a newer tool. This is really fun. Before you can build something, depending on what you're building, sometimes you have to demo things. You have to take apart what is before you can build what it should be. Now, God's word does this too, right? Teaches us what should be, reproves, corrects. Well, this is kind of fun because it adjusts. Look at this. If you don't have one of these, you should get one just so you can do this, right? So if you're pulling nails or ripping apart boards, depending on on the the angle and the leverage you have, you can push this little button and adjust it forever, right? To get yourself 
anymore, more leverage. This is a fun tool. It was like 15 bucks at Home Depot. You too. They'd tell them I sent you and they'll give me a discount on something. But I, I used this a lot over the last month to pull out, to pull out things that needed to get pulled out. Sometimes nails, sometimes boards I didn't need anymore, things that were rotten. God's word is like that too. It, it takes things apart sometimes that need to be pulled apart. God's word can draw a line between and separate what's, what's worthless from what's valuable. That's the word of God. And this tool reminds me of that. It has some functions that are very similar to the functions of the word of God. You all recognize this. Uh, no, you don't. This is my dad's hammer. Again, used in conjunction with this to build the house in which I was raised. This is the very hammer. Yes, in fact, the very hammer that I once, when I was a child, left it out in the rain and had a conversation about that uh, years later. I'm still using my dad's. It was his favorite hammer. He had other hammers. You have all kinds of different hammers for different functions. But this was like his main, main hammer. Jeremiah said, your word is like a fire. I didn't bring anything that lights on fire. But in the same verse, it says, and it's like a hammer that smashes rocks. God's word breaks up things that are hard, like your heart. See, God's word, Jeremiah says, is like a hammer. Smashes rocks. Oh, boy. What's this? A level old school. I know many of you who are smarter and buy things like that uh, have laser levels these days. You don't need this old fashioned. uh, There's a bubble in there. Well, there is. This is the level that I'm using because it's close enough for my purposes. I'm not doing brain surgery, um, building a deck. So it's got some wobble in it. Well, I use this all the time to tell me what's what's accurate. So there it is right in the middle. That's where it should be. Or to measure it this way. I can do that, too. God's word does this to you. It measures your life and tells you where you're out of, out of balance. God's word tells you where, where something isn't quite right and your life is like this. God uses his word to say, uh, 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 straighten it out, straighten it out. Are you listening to the word of God? If you don't listen to the word of God, you're not going to notice. You're going to think you're just fine and you're like this. See, no, everybody else seems to be like this. I'm like this too. No, listen to the word of God. It'll tell you what's on the level. This little guy, this is my handy-dandy 25-foot Stanley tape measure. You know what's really cool? Go ahead, ask me. What's cool? All right, well, I'll tell you. This is pretty amazing. Did you know that on my square, there are numbers too? Oh, for goodness sakes, it measures it going this way or this way. And did you know that the 12 inches on here, here's the part that's really cool, it's the same length as the 12 inches on here. Why is that so? Because there's an objective standard of what a foot is. That's why if you use the English system, there's an objective standard. You don't just make it up. You say, well, to me, to me, to me, a foot is like this. Who are you to say that I'm wrong? So I'm going to say it's six feet of those, right? Because I believe it should be 44 inches. No, it's because you're going to have a mess of a house. There's a standard of what 12 inches is. It's, well, 12 inches. Whether it's here or here, and God's word is like that. It's a sta- there's a standard. There's a standard. If you, if you, you can say all you want. Well, to me, it's not that way. 
Well, you may be a fool. Sorry. To me, to me, a foot is 14 and a half inches. Well, that's, that's really dumb. Right? And you just saying it's 14 and a half inches does not make it true. No, there's a standard. And today it's very, very popular to say, well, to me, to me, this is truth. Well, you may be a fool. You may very well be a fool. If you build your life and your eternal destiny on what seems true to you, guess what? There's an end that seems right to a man. Its end is the way of death. Come on. No, no. There's a, 12 inches is a foot in the English system. It's what it is, whether you like it or not. What's this? Why would, I, why would I care about these? Yeah, when I'm running my... By the way, all ten digits are still here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not superstitious. Um, skill saw, chop saw, drilling a few things, hand saw. When I'm doing things that are loud, I wear these. I wear glasses to protect my eyes. And I wear these to protect my ears. And by the way, I'm sure all of you do the same thing whenever you're doing things with loud noises because you protect what you value. God's word protects us. God's word protects us. Because things will come along and hurt you. And as you've heard from somebody wise, if you damage your hearing, guess what? That's damaged. Those parts of your ears don't regenerate. So you can permanently damage your hearing by doing the wrong stuff. Guess what you can do with your life, dear friends? You can permanently damage your life by not using the protection of the word of God. Say, wow, I should have known that. Yeah, you should have. Says it right there. It has for, you know, a few thousand years. God's word protects us. Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to go here for just a couple minutes and we'll land it. God's, the Bible's God-breathed. It's God's word. Hebrews 4. I'm going to start at verse 11. This little last part of your study notes. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Looking to the paragraph before, rest is used as an analogy of faith in Christ. Did you know that Sabbath rest is used as an analogy to faith in Christ? Entering rest means you quit working for what you can't earn and you rest in Christ. You trust him as your savior. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Again, he's talking about some things. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Verse 11 begins with a warning. Dire consequences. Make sure you don't ignore what God says in his word. Don't you ignore what the Bible says. Don't you ignore what the Bible says. There's a warning. Don't you fail to enter the rest that God has provided in his son Jesus. Don't you ignore him. Don't you do that. 
You do that to your own peril, eternal peril. God's word draws a clear line between things that are hidden and things that are exposed. God's word exposes things. That's verse verse 13. God's word makes clear even things that are hard to see, the difference between joints and marrow, thoughts and intents of the heart, the difference between soul and spirit. God's word can cut it that fine. It draws a clear line, exposes hidden things. God uses his word to point out what's going on in your heart. And may I say this, the Bible is not simply an old book written by people who died a long time ago. It is the life-giving word of God. You hear that? The word of God must define us. That's my point today. God's life-giving word must define us. It should define your life. It must define us as a church. And as we begin another ministry year, I just want to say that it is our commitment as a church that the word of God would be preached faithfully from this pulpit and that it would reverberate through every ministry of this church. Oh, I know, always room to do better. But that's what we're after, that every single ministry, relationships, interaction people to people, community groups, outreach things, that it would be built on the foundation of the word of God, that God's word would be like a river running through it, that we would be able to know what's true and not, be reconciled with the God who made us, that we'd cut it right. Now, on that part that says response to God's word, there are two things. One involves your involvement, or includes your involvement. First of all, I'd say this. Um, in all of my conversation today about the word of God, it is not simply a matter of pages and ink. The Bible points us to the living God who sent his son Jesus to die for your sin. And the greatest way you can value the word of God is to believe what the Bible says about how to be made right with him through Jesus. See? So just to, to, to hallow a book isn't enough. To believe its message Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The greatest way that you value the word of God is to believe and to act on its message. First of all, trusting Christ is your savior from sin. And if you're not sure what all that means, you want to talk about it, I'd be happy to talk to you about that. No arm twisting, no pressure. The spirit of God does that better than me. But if you want to know more about what we mean when we say trust Christ as your Savior, be happy to chat with you about that. Okay? So trust me, no pushing. I won't do that. I'll just explain to you what the Bible has to say and, and invite you to, to believe it. Now, we've prepared a response of faith and affirmation, basically a, a scripture reading. And this is, a, this is going to be up here on the screen, and I'd like you to read it with me. Some of these are parts we've read this morning. Other are verses we haven't but this will be our our closing today but i'd like us to read together what the word of god says there's two parts it goes leader that's me and all that's us so it's not complicated at all but let's read together these statements of what the bible god's life-giving word says about itself the grass withers the flower fades But the word of our God will stand forever. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them is great reward. And together then, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You can take that to the bank. Would you stand with me? I'd like us to pray together. And then y'all can come down, take a look at these Bibles or tools or whatever you'd like to do. Parents, come on down with your kids. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for your life-giving word, O oh God. May it continue to breathe life to our very souls as we spend time in it on a daily basis. And Father, I pray that we as a church would be a place where the word of God is rightly honored, preached, taught, believed, lived, loved in such a way that Christ, Christ is honored. Father, do that among us. Protect us from things that would lead us astray. God, do that. Do that among us, I pray. Bless your people today. Most of all, with the love for you. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen.